Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today we are talking about the family in Star Trek Discovery. Woo! <laughs> I think we're now in a new Trek era. <laughs> <laughs> this is New Trek Era Family Edition. Part two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When we were recording the original series, Family Relationships, it was so hard in that episode not to talk about Discovery because this show provides so much more context for Spock's timeline that it's really difficult to view him now in a way without Michael. So I'm very excited to finally talk about Spock and Michael and Amanda and Sarek and all their crazy dynamics, but you're going to have to wait. Because we have a whole cast of characters to talk about. We are going to be talking about Saru, Tilly, Hugh Stamets and Adira, Nan, Ash, Book, Giorgio, and finally, Michael and Company. Woo! Yes. Oh, we are very <laughs> excited. And before that, I have a question for you, Rihanna. What is your random Star Trek thought of the week? My random Star Trek thought of the week is how amazing it is that we know so many characters who are the first of their species to join Starfleet. We know Spock. We know Nog. We know Worf. We know Saru. Troy, is she the first Beta Zed? I don't know. Who knows? There's just so many characters who are trailblazing into Starfleet. And I think a lot about how if it weren't for Spock and if it weren't for people like Worf to join Starfleet who paved the way for other people then there wouldn't be Klingons like Balana in Starfleet, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's just incredible to think about that. And especially since we're going into Discovery Season 3, learning about how many species joined the Federation since they had jumped into the future and how Kaminar joined the Kelpians and everything. And it just makes me so happy to think about all those trailblazers. It makes me think about real life, how women of color and queer people and all of these different groups, someone has to be the first to join something in order for it to become a precedent. I'm just really wanting to celebrate those characters who said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go join Starfleet regardless of the boundaries against me. Rihanna, I was going to say this is a great random thought of the week. Could it at all be connected to the fact that we have our first ever female vice president of color? Could you think that was on your mind at all this week? (laughs) Very prevalent on my mind. Um, I think about Kamala Harris probably three times a day. So I think that is probably where it came from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a (laughs) hypothesis because... We had people like Nichelle Nichols on the original Star Trek show, and we just had Martin Luther King Day this past week. Rihanna sent a great interview to me with Nichelle Nichols talking about why Martin Luther King convinced her to stay on the show. And this is exactly why. So now we have historic people running for office and our representation for us. And it's great because a show like Star Trek is always pushing boundaries and thinking about the future. And so it's great. I'm just so happy. And that's a great and inspiring random thought of the week. 
Thank you. I will also say that Blue DeBarro, who plays Adira, is the first out non-binary actor to play a non-binary character. So I just am always overwhelmingly amazed and delighted by Star Trek Discovery's representation and by Star Trek's representation as a whole. And I just think it's important to celebrate people who make that difference. So yeah. Yeah. Ashlyn, what is your random Star Trek thought of the week? Well, my random Star Trek thought of the week is not as inspiring because it's about how annoyed I am with ancient Earth references. I'm so annoyed. Specifically, Alice in Wonderland. Now, I'm sorry if there's any Lewis Carroll diehards out there, Alice in Wonderland diehards, I'm sorry. You should probably just skip the next couple minutes because I am so frustrated. I understand that they're trying to connect to us, but why are we talking about Alice in Wonderland so much? Like Spock quotes Hamlet, which is cool. Everybody like talks Shakespeare and like it's fine. But again, let's move on. Like, wouldn't it be funny if they were just saying like random stuff and they're like, ah, don't you remember the book of battery life by <laughs> Shakespeare's uncle? I don't know. This is a terrible example. <laughs> Ashlyn, I cannot wait to read the book of battery life. <laughs> I think the only time I can think of that they have new references mixed with ancient earth references is in the final frontier when they want to sing a song around the campfire and they're trying to decide which song and McCoy's like, oh, Camp Town races. And Kirk's like, moon over Rigel 7. And then, yes. Sp- yeah, row, row, row your boat. And so I love that moon over Rigel 7 exists. I would just like to see more made up culture in Star Trek. <laughs> Particularly because Discovery has a lot of references to like, oh, this is a Cassilian opera or, oh, let's listen to this Andorian opera. Like Stamets is always listening to some opera. And apparently like in Cassilian opera, the soprano dies after her final note. So anyway, I don't think you would go that hard. As a soprano myself, that's crazy and very high stakes. I think that already the profession of being an opera singer is pretty high stakes, but to have to kill yourself after your high note, I mean, that's like real diva level. (laughs) That's, yeah, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. They have the opportunity to do references, so why not do it, guys? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I think they can only come up with different types of opera. There's also Klingon opera, which I'm glad, like, opera has representation in Star Trek. But what about, like, Romulan musical theater, you know? (laughs) What about, like, Andorian stand-up? Oh, I'm here for this. Okay. I feel like Shran could really just, like, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But sadly, this isn't a podcast about Shran. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we could get Jeffrey Combs on the pod in, Mm. like, 10 years, you know? Yeah, anyone out there who just is, like, pals with Jeffrey, let us know. Please email us at the Podcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Yeah, while you're at it, maybe check out our Patreon, you know, Mm -hmm. just for exclusive reviews of Lower Decks. I don't know. I don't (laughs) don't know. know. Maybe. (laughs) If you have time. Yeah. We actually did just record and upload our Patreon today as we were recording this podcast. So that was a really fun time. Just saying. I know Lower Decks is now out in the UK. So I want to congratulate our friends out across the pond. (laughs) Oh, God. And I also apologize, and I'm sad that we have no more UK listeners after that uh, horrible. They all left. Yeah, they all left. They all they all turned it off. They're they like, not, not this week. <laughs> so 
Ashlyn, I think that this is a perfect time for us to talk about Saru. Yes. Oh, Saru. <laughs> I just cannot get enough of this man, cannot get enough of Doug Jones. I think that if a day goes by where I don't think about how incredible of an actor Doug Jones is, and if a Discovery podcast goes by and we don't talk about it, then it's wasted. Doug Jones has actually liked one of our tweets on Twitter. So I feel like we're famous because of that. Doug Jones yeah. is always out here supporting fans because we support him. So this yeah. is a shout out to Doug Jones. I feel like the true Twitter height is to be liked by Doug Jones and blocked by William Shatner. And followed by Star Trek official. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the, the trio. That's a trio. <laughs> yeah. So we have one out of three. We're doing well. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay, so let's talk about this historic Kelpian who joins the Federation, first of his kind, like Rihanna was talking about, also the first of his species in hundreds and hundreds of years to pass through Vaharai, to discover the ancient truth about his culture, and then to rid them of slavery. Let's talk about Saru. Truly a revolutionary character with a kind of complicated family history. There's a very interesting dynamic here where Saru, after he passes through Vaharai, comes back to Kaminar because this is where one of the signals has appeared in the episode Sound of Thunder, which is in season two. And Saru is fiercely, fiercely passionate about spreading the word about Vaharai, but he knows that this would be a violation of not quite the Prime Directive because they know about species, but they're not warp capable. So Saru has not been back to Kaminar in 18 years. He has been in Starfleet, climbing up the ranks, becoming the first Kelpian, you know, just trailblazing the usual stuff. Casual. <laughs> and he comes back with a completely new attitude about his fellow Kelpians and about Kaminar and his family because he has passed through Vaharai, which he thought he wouldn't be able to live through. And this has completely changed who he is. I mean, I think that at his fundamental core, he's still Saru, but he is more confident now. He is not, you know, sensing the oncoming of death every couple episodes. It's very nice. Like, I think that he has gained a lot of confidence and a lot of strength in passing through Vaharai. And you can tell he's very sure of himself now. And so he comes back home. And I think it does sort of unbalance his footing a bit because he's now experiencing the world through his old eyes and through Serana, his sister's eyes, who has not passed through Vaharai and who does not know where he has been. She thinks that he was taken by the watchful eye from the Ba'ul, which is the predator species. No she says that that's what she thought, but really she saw the beam of light pick up Saru. So this whole time she's lying to him, I think maybe to make him guilty. Well, she says at the end of the episode that she knew that he had been taken away and she never said anything because that meant that he was safe. She's kind of playing him a little bit, I think because she's really grumpy. <laughs> I mean, she has a lot of hidden feelings about how frustrating it is that he was gone and left her alone. Thank yeah. you. And I think that's so important because he left her without even saying goodbye, without telling where he was going. There was so much secrecy surrounding his departure. And there's actually a short trek episode that ties into this called The Brightest Star. And we see when Saru leaves and Serana gives him her knife because she's like, this is for the moon flowers that you can cut. And she thinks he's just going to go gaze at the stars for the while, but he never returns or doesn't return for 18 years, I should say. And so that's going to be really traumatic and scary and just 
awful to go through as a sibling. I think I would also be very pissed at you if you left without a word, especially because they seemingly had a very close relationship before this. We have talked a lot on this podcast about returning home and about how that can feel because so many of our characters have not talked to their parents in 18 years and now they're (laughs) home. Something interesting about Serana is that she became a priest because of Saru, because she was looking at the stars and wanted to learn more. And so she thought if she has a connection to the Baal perhaps she can get more answers about her society and about Saru. I also would just be angry. Like, Rihanna, if you just left without telling me for 18 years, like, it's, I mean, that's so damaging and so horrible and sad, especially if you can't understand why, like she did. But I love that instead of shrinking away from society or anything like that, she steps up and becomes a leader in her community because I think she takes that role on herself. We know that their father was a priest. And so, of course, she would view it as I'm following his footsteps. But the fact that she has this other agenda is also really cool. And it's very Saru as well. I really admire her. And I love especially when she passes through Vaharai, how she becomes so badass. I mean, she's always been badass. But I think this fear that Kelpians live with until they pass through, it sounds to me like anxiety, but like an extreme form where you're just always overthinking everything, especially with the literal fear reaction that you have, where the ganglia come out. One of my favorite moments of the season two finale is when we see Serana come and aid the Enterprise and Discovery into fighting control. It's so unexpected that in this short amount of time after Vaharai is forced upon the Kelpian species that they are able to pilot warp ships, like warp capable ships, and then go and fight with them. It's amazing. It's crazy. And I'm also wondering, what is the condition of the Ba'ul at this point? Are they all dead? What's going on? Yeah, because Kelpians who have passed through Vaharai are actually the predators of the Ba'ul. And so it is kind of a question mark how their two cultures are now interacting. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's going to change how Kelpians think about life and how the Ba'ul think about them. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's, It's totally species altering. And I don't think this is the podcast to debate it. Again, we're going to have to save it for our ethics, but I do have a lot of question marks about forcing a species to evolve without their consent. I know it's good because it's also kind of the equivalent of freeing them from slavery. I have very mixed feelings about it, especially because it's very painful. And also there's been no research done about what the effects are when they're older. Does that mean that because they were forced through Vaharai and it wasn't a natural process, they're going to die sooner? Like we have no idea. And so I was just thinking about about that and hoping that Saru is okay and everyone else is okay. Yeah, same. I wanted to talk a little bit about this scene with Serana when they first meet again on Kaminar. Yeah. And how she says to him, you ran away because you were not brave enough to face the balance as the rest of us do. This is what she first says to him. Yeah. And these are cutting words. Like that's got to be really hard to hear because I think that probably a part of Saru has always felt guilty for leaving Serana behind because there is a moment in the short trek, The Brightest Star, where he pauses for a moment 
and I think considers bringing her along with him to get her away from this life. But I think that he knew that she needed to take care of their father and she needed to take up this mantle. But he also called his father a collaborator, yes. not just a priest. But I just think that maybe he trusted Serana to be more in the middle about it and not as willing to just follow whatever the Ba'u will say. Like, I think that he trusted her to take up a better mantle than his father did and to be more skeptical and everything. And that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't take her along. But yeah, I just wonder what would you do in this situation? And do you think that Saru made the right choice? I would have definitely taken her or at least asked her if she wanted to go. Yeah. I would have at least talked to her. I know it's very dangerous because the Baul could have ears listening. And so maybe that's a big reason why he didn't do it. But I feel like he could have written her a letter. I just feel like he was wrong to not at least inform her about this. But he's also young. And it seems like when he was growing up, everyone was telling him, don't push it, don't push it. And so like if something were to go wrong and she were to find out, that would also be really bad. Like if she was somehow involved in his plan and he was caught, you know? So I don't know. I probably would have written a letter or some way that the bowel wouldn't have found out. I don't know. What do you think, Rihanna? I completely agree. It's funny because a part of me, though, really relates to Saru in this because there's a line that Serana says to him right before she heads back to their house while he's waiting for the ship to arrive. He's like, oh, I'm going to stay out for a little while longer and watch the stars. And she says, look down every once in a while. There's beautiful things here, too. Mm. And I really relate to Saru where I'm always looking up. I'm always thinking about distant vistas and about places I can go next and what's new out there. And I think that sometimes it does blind me and it blinds Saru to the beauty of the moment. But I think also that's what a lot of people in Starfleet are like. I think a lot of people look to the stars, especially people like Saru, like Spock, like Worf, like I was talking about in my Star Trek thought, people who feel like they don't belong in the world that they were born into. And I think that Saru has always questioned the status quo. He's always asking his father, father, why are we listening to the Ba'ul? His father's like, it's the way, the great balance, you know, yeah. like, don't ask questions, essentially. I'm struck by how Starfleet Saru is, <laughs> even before he joins. There's a Mandalorian joke in there somewhere. This is the way. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rihanna. Uh, one thing in Sound of Thunder, when the signal appears over Kaminar and he's going back, Pike and Michael think <laughs> that Suru might be emotionally compromised for this trip and it's not a good idea for him to go down. But it is Michael who ends up convincing Pike. And I think it makes sense because Suru's a Kelpian. They have not seen any other species besides the Ba'ul. It's the right choice. But I do think if there had been any other Kelpian on board, they should have gone. Suru was emotionally compromised, I think. In episode four of the second season, Obelford Charon, I think is how you say <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. Um, Saru goes into pre-Vaharai and he knows he's going to die, or he thinks. And he suddenly is full of regret. He's very upset that he did not take more time to appreciate his culture and to even go home or have more interaction. But yeah, so one of my favorite lines around when Saru's going through Vaharai, and I believe he says to Tilly, because I was the only Kelpian in Starfleet, I put a lot of pressure on myself to be the best and to excel and to rank up as quickly as possible because I had to be perfect. But I really regret not taking more time to appreciate my species and to appreciate my family. So I think 
in Sound of Thunder when he's faced with the choice to beam down or to stay on Discovery. He's forced to obey Starfleet regulations right when he's having regret about not devoting his life to family. And so this is such a sad crux for him because he's going through all of his emotional trauma anyway. And then to be forced to confront that in that very high pressure situation is really tricky. And I think he navigates it beautifully because Saru is able to talk to his sister. And I think that helps him through. I don't know. What do you think, Rihanna? Wow. That was beautiful. Yeah. Ooh, this is tough for him. Something that's really beautiful that I like is when Serana beams up to discovery and she gets to see his quarters and she says, you took home with you when she sees all the plants mm-hmm. from Kaminar. And I think that that is partially his way to honor his past. It's similar to how Spock's quarters look, actually, because yeah. because we're in another realm where we can talk about Spock. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm going to be literally talking about him even when it's not his turn. But anyway, it's, I think, a way for him to remember his roots. But I think you're right. There is a ton of guilt and... I think he does have a lot of regrets, especially when he's thinking about dying, because I think that that actually happens to a lot of us is when you're looking back on your life, it's hard not to have regrets because everyone would like to have done one thing different, I think at least, or been one certain way that they weren't. And I think it is great that Serana gives him the space, at least at the end of this episode, after they pass through Vaharai, I think that she finally understands yeah. him better. And so now offers this time for Serana to join, but she stays for her people and she does accept him and why he left. Also, they're really good at communicating. I think that this is why they can get over their problems easier than someone like Michael and Spock is because they're both not stubborn. They're both fairly empathic people and they understand each other really well. And I think that also comes from a place of understanding fear and living in fear so long. If you're going to use the anxiety metaphor, I think it's kind of a perfect one because because it's the fact that you can relate to people more through fear and you can understand why someone is doing things if it's out of fear. It makes more sense because fear is this baser emotion that controls people very deeply and it controls an entire species and thinks that they have to die, you know, when their quote unquote time has come. I think that Saru was trying to escape that destiny. He was trying to get out of this biological trap that he thought he had been caught in his whole life. And that is beautiful. I love when people can stand up and say, this is not what my life is going to be. I'm not going to let this happen. Actually literally reminds me of when Ashlyn was younger, she had juvenile arthritis and one day she was just like I'm done with this I'm tired of it and I swear you just like willed it away you know I mean (laughs) our mom was like that's not how it works honey like sorry and you were like no I'm not gonna have this anymore and it went into remission it's partially the determination of knowing that you can have something better for your life and knowing that you can overcome these things with sheer will is just so incredible I think the anxiety metaphor is perfect now that I'm thinking more about it too, because that is what makes Saru such a good captain because he's already thought of every other scenario and he's choosing the best one because that's his fear response is, okay, how can this go wrong? (laughs) And then let's avoid it. And so what I love about when he passes through Vaharai is he has confidence. I think he's still analyzing every scenario and saying, how can this go wrong? And let's do the other thing. But 
he's confident about his choices. And, and just like anyone with anxiety, you have to figure out and gain tools for yourself and become confident despite your anxious thoughts. And so to see this in Saru is awesome. I know we're talking a lot about Saru as a character, but it's because of what he's gone through in his life that oh, yeah. made him this way. Yeah. I yeah. feel like exactly what you said about him being a good captain. I feel like his entire life before going through Vaharai was the Kobayashi Maru, <laughs> you know, to face fear, to face death. He was facing it his whole life anyway. And so of course he's going to be a good analytical captain because he understands the dangers that lie ahead. Your point about him and Serana being good communicators is really important too because Saru is a great listener. And I think that's another reason he's such a good captain is because he can hear several points of view, be able to figure out what the best one is. And also he trusts his people because he's a good judge of character as well. Yeah, Saru's great. And I think that his relationship with his sister is very special. I just can't stop thinking about when she comes to rescue him. She says, I will never again let you fight alone. Yes. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So I love that. She hears his goodbye letter. She's not weeping or sad. She's like, okay, let's take the ship and let's take the entire fleet out and go help him, you know, because he's our brother. Which is also incredible because Saru is, at this point, he has committed, I believe, to going into the future with Michael. I think that that's even more incredible that she's like, this is not how we're going to say goodbye either. I'm going to come and fight so you won't be alone and come to see you. I'm sure that a lot of other family members would do that if they could, but they can't because they're either like they don't know how to pilot starships or don't have the opportunity to. But I think that's got to be so special for Saru, especially because when he first left Kaminar, Giorgio asked him, like, are you sure about this? Because you will not be able to come back, which of course he does, <laughs> um, but only because of the signal. But he went in knowing that he would never get to return. And that has got to be a horribly tough decision to make. And I think it's something that once again, a lot of astronauts right now and probably a lot of Starfleet officers in the future will do because Starfleet hopefully is going to be real. And it won't be Space Force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People understand when joining an astronaut program that like they could go up to a mission that could be one way, you know, that they could maybe not make it back. For Saru's case, it's literally like you're not even allowed to because it's under Starfleet restrictions of non-interference. Yeah, I mean, he made the sacrifice and I think that Serana appreciates the sacrifice he made and she's finally getting to see why he did in action. She's seeing like, wow, you're saving the entire universe. That's really cool. I'll come and help you. Do we know how old Saru is when he left his home? I'm guessing he was like 18, hasn't <laughs> been back in 18 years. So he's like 36. Kelpians live a long time. We know from the season three finale that they can live a while. So yeah. maybe he's like in his 40s. And that would make sense for being a captain. I don't know. But I'm bringing this up because I wonder if he could conceive of how much of a sacrifice it was at the time mm -hmm. when he left. Because I know even for myself, I remember when I was leaving home and going to college, I was mostly excited. <laughs> and I mean, it's a different scenario. I can go home whenever I want. Saru can't. But I think when you're stuck somewhere, your head's in the clouds like Saru's was. And all you can think about are the negative things around you. It's like when you're about to go on vacation, you know, and then you're at work and you're like, God, work sucks so much. I can't wait till five o'clock when I get to hop on a plane to Hawaii, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, All you can think about are the negative aspects. And I think Saru was so excited to leave. I don't know if he really could comprehend how much of a sacrifice it was. I mean, Giorgio was good to really 
really make sure he was serious because, I mean, this is a huge, huge deal. So it, it makes sense that I could easily see him getting caught up in the order of Starfleet because it's such a great place to take in these strays, you know, and you fit right in. You have a family and a ship and friends at the Academy. I feel for Saru and I'm so happy that he got to come back to Kaminar and see his family again before he had to leave forever. <laughs> yeah, I think the only difficult part is the fact that he didn't get to ever say goodbye to his father before his father passed because he died shortly after Saru left because his time of Ahurai came. So that's going to be really tough. And I think also the whole idea that all of his family members could have been spared if they had known about the truth of the Harai and how they can pass through without the madness and without dying and without having to be ritually murdered, that would really cause a horrible pain, I think, you know, to think about all of the past family members who could have survived. I mean, even in Terra Firma Part 2, when uh, Mirror Saru is like, my mother, my family, like they could have lived. And Empress Jojo is like, you mustn't think of that. You must think of the future. His Starfleet family does help him to move forward from those ideas, but Serana also helps him to ground him in the world of Kaminar. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Saru calls his father a collaborator, but an unwitting one. He did not realize that he was helping the Ba'ul because, I mean, he was reporting people who were doing bad things to them. I know if he had known the truth, his father would not be like that. But again, when you are living in a state of fear your entire life, why wouldn't he be mad at Saru for disobeying? Because fear is all you've ever known and you're gonna die being afraid of everything. It's so sad. I'm just glad that Saru was able to force them into evolution. Question mark. <laughs> yeah. I'm still feeling weird about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm -hmm. me too. Who knew that we would talk about Saru for an hour? Wow, that really all <laughs> just came out, you know? <laughs> It's hard not to. And one more thing I do have to say about Saru that I am so glad that at the end of season three, he made his choice, even though I'm going to miss him. And I think Captain Saru should still be a thing. I really am glad that he gets to go and see Kaminar again, because I think it will be like a reconnection to his past, to his family, to the people that he lost from jumping into the future. Like I'm sure he misses Serana every single day. And so I think it will be really nice for him to feel close to her through the land, you know? Yes. And I think this new friend that he has will really help him through this transition as well. I think it'll be really interesting to see him in this future Kaminar in the next season. Agreed. I think there's someone else who will have a better future in the next season. And that's Tilly. Yes, Sylvia Tilly. Oh, a queen. One of my very favorite characters in this series. Yeah. She reminds me a lot of me. I think that's why <laughs> I really relate to Tilly. Yeah. So we don't get a ton about Tilly truly seeing her family, except in the episode Runaway, which is a short trek. If you haven't seen it, go watch it right now. It's incredible. Go watch all the short treks while you're at it, actually. You can watch them in like three hours max. And Ooh. that's if you have a snack break, you know? Yeah. Like they're all, there's so many of them and they're like 15 minutes long. So it's amazing. Anyway, throughout the series, Tilly constantly complains about her mom or makes jokes. There's actually a scene in season three where Saru is trying desperately to have a bridge crew family dinner, <laughs> essentially, to try and make everyone bond and 
help them through their traumas of coming into the future and all of this. And it's not going well because everyone's super on edge. They're coiled tight, like a spring about to snap and Detmer does snap and it's like not good. And everyone leaves, but Tilly and Tilly says to Saru, Oh, that was like a Tuesday at my house. (laughs) (laughs) So Tilly is always dropping these comments about how difficult seemingly her growing up was because she has a helicopter parent, seemingly a helicopter mom who is nagging her constantly to be better. And in this episode, Runaway, she even says to her, oh, your stepsister was telling me about this. She's so smart and intelligent, even though Tilly was literally just explaining to her about her joining the captain training program. So it's a lot to unpack here because I think it makes me really understand where Tilly's insecurities come from because they're deep insecurities, at least in the first season, especially. Rihanna, I keep wanting to interrupt you and make a point. And then you say the point I want to interrupt you with. So I think we should just call us the Batur podcast where Rihanna makes great points the whole time and Lursa just gives her the thumbs up. Not um, true. Lursa is killing it. <laughs> Lursa um, and Vator. <laughs> Hashtag not just Vator. <laughs> yeah. Yes to everything you said. One of my favorite parts of Runaway is because Tilly's connecting with the queen of Zahia. And it's, I keep Mahali getting calls. Le- Mahali Lapo, I think is her full name. Oh, yeah. Pike is the only one who can say the full name. Yeah, he's good at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's what? his job. They, yeah. yeah, it's like Picard yeah. where he's like, "Foxy, yeah, How many characters have we been derailed by this time? Spock, Picard, Worf. <laughs> We're probably going to talk about Janeway soon. Anyway, oh no, I'm actually. I was actually just going to talk about Esri because. Okay, well, actually, first, so I'll finish my quote. Um, so one of my favorite parts is when. Tilly's trying to connect with Poe to make her trust her and to help her through this situation that she's in. Tilly says to her, when the people who love you don't listen to you, it's frightening and lonely and it makes you feel like you're crazy and not even there. Mm. And I mean, I think that describes everything for Tilly. It seems like her mother does not have confidence in her and really doubts her all the time, no matter what Tilly says. It sounds like Tilly's mom does not really know who she is because she hasn't been taking the time to get to know her, especially after she's joined Starfleet. I assume her mom does not support her very much in this endeavor. And so I think Tilly, it seems like a lot of her life, she's been crushed by this. But now... In especially like the first season of Discovery and into season two and three, she's finally fighting to get over this. And the reason why she's such an anxious person, she's always funny in social situations. She talks too much when she's nervous. And I think she's like this because of her mom and because of all the horrible comments her mom has probably said to her that are sticking in her mind every time she opens her mouth. And I feel for Tilly. And I'm so happy that as an act of rebellion, she's joining the command training program to say, you know what, mom, F you, I can do what I want. And you don't know me, you don't get to say things about me, because you don't even know who I am. The mom really reminds me of Esri's mom, which we talked about a lot in the Deep Space Nine part one podcast. Please go listen to that podcast for like a more thorough explanation. But she is similarly very doubtful of her children's abilities and she's constantly putting them down and constantly comparing them to each other, just like what's happening with Tilly's 
stepsister. And so, I mean, that's really hard to go through. And I'm just proud that Tilly was able to remove herself from the situation. Esri's brothers do not get that same luxury of being able to escape this toxic environment. And so I'm proud of Tilly for being able to move on and make something great of her life because Starfleet's the best. Yes, Lursa. See, you were making amazing <laughs> points. <laughs> Again, I completely agree. Something I do want to add on to that too is Tilly's mom. Her name is Siobhan, which is the name of one of my exes. So not a fan. <laughs> Literally, the short trek, it's a short episode, obviously. It's like 15 minutes total. But the first five minutes is just her on a hollow call with her mom. And I think her mom manages to insult her like three times in these five minutes. Yeah. And that's just awful because it's also the kind of backhanded insults that are conniving that completely, you're exactly right, remind me of Esri's mom. She says to her, you know how you can get, which is one of my very least favorite things that a parent can say to a child because it is belittling how they're feeling. It's making their emotions feel less valid and it's making them feel more crazy than they are. Like you said, how she feels crazy and not listened to. And I think this comes from a different point of feeling ignored as a child. I think that that creates its own problems. But I think when you have a parent who is over controlling, but they think they know you, but they don't, it can also be really damaging because then they assume they know what's best for you. And then they put on attributes to you that don't exist. And so she says she knows how Tilly can get. She's probably assuming all of these negative things, which I would put a positive connotation to being like, well, Tilly may have anxiety and may be a nervous talker, but she also talks out loud, figures out problems much faster than she would if she like kept it all in her head, I think. You know, I think it helps that she speaks rapid fire because then she's like, oh, I solved this ridiculously difficult math equation and just saved the entire ship. Or, oh, I'm going to go do this with my eyes closed because I did it for a drinking game. You know, like, yeah, she's not the most <laughs> conventional scientist out there. But I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going off about Tilly because I would die for her. And I think that a lot of people don't give her enough credit, including herself. And that's what really bothers me and why I love the fact that she has a crew like Discovery who is behind her, who have so many women in STEM who understand what it's like. And of course, like Starfleet, we're way in the future. Women in STEM are way more accepted. But I think that probably at her household at home, she was probably not expected to be a scientist or a mathematician or anything. And I think you're absolutely right that it contributes to so much of her insecurities and why after she told her about the command training program, she said, well, don't run away from this like you do with most things. And that's why this episode's called The Runaway because Poe also is running away from <laughs> her fear of being the literal queen of a planet. She a queen. She a queen. <laughs> like I love Poe and I love Tilly and I think that they help each other in this moment to understand that running away cannot solve your problems for long enough. You know, it can temporarily relieve the anxiety and the pressure, but it doesn't just make things go away, you know, and it's eventually going to catch up with you. And I think that Tilly finally facing those things, like you said, especially coming into these newer seasons, like coming into season two and three, she is so coming into herself as a person and starting to understand her worth. But of course, she's going to still have mom baggage, you know? I mean, her mom seems like a piece of work and seems like someone who she had a hard time saying goodbye to when she was going to the future at the end of season two. What she writes to her mom when everybody's saying their goodbyes is, 
I'll never know if I made you proud, but I made myself proud. Wow. That's amazing. And see, that's what's so important. And sometimes I think we have to admit that your parents can't be the only way you look at yourself. And sometimes you shouldn't look at yourself the way your parents look at you. You can't take to heart everything your parents say about you because the best person who knows you is you. And if you're not confident in that, then it shows. And I think that Tilly just grows so much despite her family background and because she has a crew family who will back her up and who will listen to her even when she's rambling because they're like, Tilly, we know you're going somewhere really awesome with this, but like, (laughs) we got to get going, (laughs) you know, and they accept her for her chattiness and her, you know, maybe like some social anxiety and her her Tilly-isms. Her Tilly-isms, exactly. And I'm wearing a Tilly ponytail today. I just love her. I think she's amazing. The only mom you should listen to at all times is Gabrielle Burnham. Um, just oh throwing it out God, there. Yes. But, but we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I cannot wait. I love her. Um, before we move on, I want to celebrate Tilly and just celebrate, again, Starfleet in general. Can you guys tell that we like Star Trek? It's kind of hard to tell. But everything that Tilly's mom is hating on her for and teasing her about and criticizing her for is exactly what makes Tilly great. And it's just similar to what you were saying, Rihanna. I'm excited for a future where everybody is confident in what makes them different and they are able to use that to do great things. And I just hope everyone has the confidence that Tilly has as she ages and progresses through these episodes just someday maybe we'll make it <laughs> if everyone goes to therapy. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm literally tearing up from what you just said. That was so beautiful. Thank you. I really want to talk about a new family that is brewing. We are, of course, talking about this not quite family, but absolutely is a family of Hugh, Stamets, and Adira. Woo, and Gray. Like on the Oh, yeah, of course. And, <laughs> and holographic memory Gray. Yeah. <laughs> One thing before we start that stuck out to me because I'm a Harry Potter nerd, I think about this quote a lot in relation to Adira and how they look at Grey. Dumbledore says to Harry, of course it's happening inside your head, Harry, but why should that mean that it's not real? And I think this is something that Stamets really instills into Adira as they're going through confusion about where's Grey, like why can't anyone else see him? And also when Grey leaves for a bit, and it's like very tumultuous for Adira. And that's sort of the way that they first connect Stamets and Adira because Stamets went through very similar stuff when Hugh was dead for a while because this is Star Trek <laughs> and people sometimes are just dead a little bit. Yeah. Um, before Hugh was back, he was seeing him in the spores when he was making jumps. He was seeing him in the spore drive. And that was as real to him as a person standing next to you, you know, and I think that he understands that more than literally anyone else could because hardly anyone goes through that experience. And it's the start of a beautiful sort of like father child relationship that the two of them have because Adira is this like intelligent, smart, wonderful person who is trying to find their way in 
Starfleet on Discovery and I and think in that, life in general. Yeah, I mean they literally had recently received a unscheduled trail symbiote and they're not a trail. <laughs> so like that's hard enough and I just love everything about the two of them together and how Stamets is really becoming a father to them. That is such a great role that I think that he didn't realize he was ready for, you know, until it started happening and he was like, "Oh, Cool. Kind of similar to Seven of Nine, I'm thinking, you know, with Ichib, how it's just, I didn't need to adopt this person, but I did. And I love every minute, you know? I think it's interesting because we do not have a lot of teenagers on Star Trek. I think poor Will Wheaton <laughs> was so demonized. <laughs> Will Wheaton, everyone. That the writers were like, no more teenagers, it won't work. But then, you know, in Voyager, like you said, we have Ichib, we have um, Q Jr., what a guy. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think Adira is a really cool addition to this crew. And I think a really realistic addition because... We see Adira like passed out all the time because when you're a teenager, you have to sleep nonstop because <laughs> your body's like so confused, especially going through this really hard situation. And on top of that, not being able to interact or touch the person that you love the most. So this is already a lot of strikes against Adira, but they're doing their best to just be a teenager and find their place in life. And so again, Shout out to Adira. But what I love about their connection with Stamets is that all it takes is two moments, I think, are really, really big for them. The first one is when Stamets totally accepts that Gray is there and that Adira can see him. That's number one. That's huge because Adira didn't think that they could trust anyone on the ship and that nobody would believe them. You know, they didn't ask to run like we have to dissect your brain to see if you're crazy or whatever. Like Hugh knows, like Hugh has everybody's health records. He knows that Adira is healthy and fine and that this is just some phenomena going on. Luckily, Adira has now two foster parents who have experienced some of the most insane situations ever. And so this is a relatively simple situation to get used to. And then number two, when Adira asks for their pronouns to be they. And Stamets, again, is like, okay, sure. You know, it's so hard to find people who will just take you on faith. And the fact that Stamets is just like, sure period. <laughs> and that's it. And then and then Hugh is like, oh, yeah. Okay. I love their family. And I love that throughout season three, Stamets does begin referring to Adira as his child. The four of them with Grey. I especially love when Hugh is down on the planet with Adira. And we can see Grey because the holodeck thing on the planet is running. So we can see Grey for the first time. I also love when Adira tells Stamets that Grey is talking to them again. Stamets says, well, I'm happy for you, but I also want to punch him in the face if I can see him, <laughs> you know, or something like that, you know, yeah. because Stamets is acting like a defensive dad and it's really great. And this is just such a natural progression. It's so healthy and authentic and beautiful. Wow, great job, writers. Absolutely. Oh God, so much about this is just so magnificent. And I really appreciate the moment in the finale where 
Stamets finds out that Adira is also down on the planet with Hugh, and he is certain that they're going to die because they only have a couple hours before the radiation kills them, and they have to jump to go and save them. But of course, Osira has literally has their ship hostage, and Stamets is, he thinks at the time, the only person who can use the spore drive, and Michael refuses to go because she is being a good future captain and having to make these really tough decisions in the moment about who are we trying to save the meats of the many, you know, I mean, she's very much pulling out her Spock logic here and saying like, we can't go back to save them when they could destroy the entire Federation right here and now. And so I find the scene where he is just distraught to be heartbreaking. Love Anthony Rapp's acting in this moment because he is desperate and horrified and terrified out of his mind you know to think about losing his family and he's yelling at her they are my family like don't let them die and yeah it just kills me to think about that and oh like I'm so glad they survived because Paul should not have to go through losing Hugh again along with losing Adira and Gray. What's also tough about that scene is that if the situation were reverse and Stamets was trying to push Michael out of the airlock, I think Michael would have lost it and would have convinced him to let her stay and let her emotions take over. I think Michael would have done the exact same thing in Stamets' position if she had gone through everything that she had. We do see a lot of Discovery characters throw everything out the window for family. That is a huge, huge theme for a lot of them, at least for Michael especially, because they understand that protocols are not as important as family when it comes down to it. And I think that Stamets is willing to risk his entire career and his entire life to save his family if he could. You know, if he could Vulcan grip Michael, he would have. <laughs> yeah, he definitely would have. I think, yeah, I totally agree. Anthony Rapp does a fantastic job in that scene. I think also throughout the season, I have really, really been getting some Stamets love. <laughs> His acting is so gentle with Adira and those scenes are just tender and you can really see his love coming through for her as well as the cute little scenes with Hugh. They're just a great couple and a great family and I'm excited to see where they're going to take them in season four. Absolutely. One last thing I want to say is how lovely it is because I feel like Stamets and Adira get a lot of alone time and so I really liked the scene in the finale scenes plural where Hugh gets to spend time with Adira and Gray on the planet because then we also get to see his gentle fatherly side and we get to yes. see him get to hug Gray for the first time and see him and is like oh my god you're here this is so exciting and he reminds me honestly a lot of mom when first time I told her about my girlfriend and like first time she met her on zoom and everything like she was just so unbelievably open and happy because I was happy and like this is your person. This is amazing. Like I'm seeing them, you know, and I just love that energy coming from Hugh because he's already such a gentle spirit and he's already, you know, sort of moving towards like a psychology realm in his like medicine studies or whatever. And I just, <laughs> medicine studies, you, but... you can tell that we're scientists. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I talk about women in STEM all the time and I am not one of these, those women. <laughs> yeah. Medicine studies. <laughs> Um, my girlfriend's literally like a psychologist, so whoops, um, but it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just really think it's, it's special that then Hugh gets some time to spend with the two of them, where I think Stamets was kind of getting all the time before. Yeah. 
I'm excited to see what's going to happen with them. And I really hope that Gray can just be a permanent holodeck member, just like the doctor. Yeah. Because I was telling my boyfriend, like, who hasn't seen Voyager, there's literally a fully holographic character who is one of the main crew. Like, this seems like it can be easily done with Gray. And with Gray, we don't have to push through all of the, like, do holograms have rights thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Protons Be Free was already a hit. Yeah, so. like, I'm sure Gray has already seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, they're, they have so much technology in the future that I'm sure they have a mobile emitter they can use for him. Oh, I think they have a mobile apartment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> After my weird apartment comment, um, now we're going to talk about non- <laughs> So Nan is the security officer aboard the Enterprise at first, and then she comes to us on Discovery. We get her in season two with Pike, one of the amazing characters that we get. And we learn a little bit about her family in the episode Forget Me Not, which I believe is episode four, season three. Well, in that episode, she meets someone of the same species as her, which is... Barzan. Yeah, she meets someone else who's Barzan, which is very exciting because in her time, like in TOS era, <laughs> as uh, Ransom, Ransom calls it. <laughs> Let's a lower decks reference case you guys don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, UK people are currently watching right now as oh. we speak. They're binging it. I'm just still very happy for you guys. I yep. wish I could relive it again for the first time. Anyway, in the TOS era, the Barzan have not joined the Federation and she's one once again, the first of her kind. And so it's really meaningful for her when she's in this future that she realizes not only have they joined the Federation, but there's a lot of them. Um, one of her biggest struggles is that her family did not approve at all of her joining Starfleet. And I think we're really ashamed of it. So <laughs> that's a weird slap in the face to the parents then in the future, because it's like, hey, you know what? Like everyone in the species is going to join soon. So suck on that <laughs> well and i, I i'm sure that the admiral guy said how long ago it was that they joined so i'm pretty sure that her parents were dead by the time they joined Star oh Boy. i i know they were yeah <laughs> something that i find truly delightful about the barzan is the fact that there's so many beautiful plants and native species on their planet and also just how non reacts to seeing a Barzan family. I've only seen her smile when she's beating up Leland or, <laughs> you know, chatting with Giorgio about how great it is to beat up the patriarchy, essentially. <laughs> that her and Giorgio have a nice friendship. Yeah, it's excellent. I just love to see the soft side of her because I think that she is a wholly underrated character. Sadly, she's not one I really think of when I think of Discovery right away. But when I do think of her, I'm like, wow, she's a badass. Like, she's really cool. The thing is, is she's had to wear these breathing devices her whole life that she's been in Starfleet because atmosphere for her that's good for humans is, and many other species, humanoid species, does not work for her. It reminds me a little bit of Bolians, I want to say. Yeah, who have the breathing, um, who have a breathing apparatus as well. We just have dry ice coming out of them all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Wesley's just like, wow, good job on this test. I mean, Bolians are super cool. Sort of augment that helps her to be in a different environment, and so it's so amazing when she goes onto the ship and she's like, haha, I can breathe. You guys have to have your own breathing apparatus to see her in her element again and watching the 
hollow videos of the Barzan family, it's really great because it sort of activates her sentimentality. Understandably, she's just learning about them joining the Federation. She's seeing her kind first time in so long. Something that she says about Barzan culture is that we come from a lot of poverty and so the little we get we invest in our children is what she says and mm -hmm. that is a beautiful sentiment I really like that idea of passing on to the next generation of children and it doesn't seem ideal that a lot of humans have of like oh the children will fix it <laughs> they'll fix our mistake <laughs> the children are our future because that's just a cop out and a way for adults not to deal with their problems is to put it on others <laughs> I was gonna say I wish we have the same thought in our society <laughs> yeah they do not invest in our children in this american society we are living in but i do know cultures who do and i think uh, especially in star trek there's some great cultures who do <laughs> you can tell in this episode that she's having some grief around not reconciling with her family before she went into the future we don't really see her in the montage of all the saying goodbye to the families that we get at the end of season two we only hear her talk about it when as you said ashley we get all that background context and she says i'd wish i'd gone home i think maybe it might have been hurtful to her that her parents because they're in this culture of investing in their children that her parents didn't seem like they did because they didn't invest in her interest in starfleet and so that's got to be a slap in the face and so i think the fact that then she can invest herself into the Barzan culture by remaining on the seed ship that keeps all of the special seeds, which is a cool idea, by the way, called like a archive, seed archive or something. Yeah, I think archive. Yeah. Anyway, either way, I just, I'm really glad that we got more information about her and got to see her grow into herself and find a path that was truly super important to her. I view a lot of these background characters in Discovery as what people in the 60s must have seen when they saw Chekhov and Sulu. Every once in a while, they have some cool episodes just about them, but not very often. And I feel like season three had a lot of those episodes that featured background characters. And I really like that. I mean, now the legacy of Chekhov and Sulu and Ahura is huge and legendary, but it wasn't when the show first started. They weren't the heavies. I, I just love getting more information, like what you're saying. And it's it's just cool. I just love Discovery. What a, what an honor to be rewatching it. I am thoroughly yeah. enjoying this. Yeah. Um, so who are we on to next? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I never liked Ash Tyler, so this is not going to be. Um, it's going to get a little dark, folks. Here we go with Ash Tyler, Laurel, and Tunovic, and the, the oldest baby we know. Oh, yeah, and Voke. Yeah. <laughs> Voke. <laughs> sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I do not like the way oh, that Ash Tyler. <laughs> I do not like any of their accents in Discovery. It's fine. Anyway, we're, we already talked about this in our pilot episode. First of all, let's go over Ash Tyler's own background well i guess we don't know him before he knows laurel but let's go over what he talks about with his family which is very sad i mean we don't get much from him but he says that he never knew his father and that his mother said he was better for it so that's not a good start and then ashlyn um well his mom I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just so sad. His mom went on the first vacation in 12 years and a rogue comet smashed into the planet where she was having her vacation and she died. It's so awful. 
Yeah. And she was a third grade teacher. So shout out to all you teachers out there not having vacations for 12 years. I really feel that vibe for you. So poor Ash, we don't know how old he was when she passes away. He's clearly had to take care of himself for a long time. And he joined Starfleet. And then he was captured by the Klingons and was tortured and assaulted and raped. And then... He had another skeleton fitted onto his and his DNA was manipulated to be Klingons and Vokes specifically. And then he was sent as an agent onto Discovery without knowing he was a Klingon spy. And and that's before he even has a baby. <laughs> well, that's before he was even forced to kill one of his crewmates and choked out the love of his life. It's just a lot. He goes through so, so much trauma. Like, he's a POW. It's just everything about Ash Tyler screams, this man needs therapy, but cannot get it. Because he's too busy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm sorry to laugh, but like, this is just the vibe he gives off. Too busy. He really is too busy, though. And then he joins Section 31, you know, in Season 2. And so we have even more of a confusing relationship with him because Michael doesn't trust him because she fell in love with him. But now she's working for the... dies. Yeah. (laughs) Before Voke dies, who's Laurel's husband, the albino Klingon, she has the baby separately. So she doesn't grow it inside of her. So we never know that this baby is even in existence until season two and at that point Vogue is dead ash is the father which he's not but he has all of Vogue's memories so he is it's a really tough situation how does he even deal with this i was actually pretty surprised that he even wanted to accept the baby as his own i mean is that stockholm syndrome with laurel i don't think he feels feelings for her because she's trying to force herself upon him several times even as their partners trying to run the klingon high council she's still making passes at him and all she wants is for him to reciprocate and he tells her when you touch me it feels like a violation i think it's a really big deal that he wants to raise this child and he does not like the idea of sending it away to a monastery and he's forced to because she will die he's risking all of their lives but i was really surprised that he was wanting to (laughs) yeah me too because he was very enthusiastic about claiming the child as his and saying i will help you raise this child i think maybe he was just trying to cling on (laughs) no pun intended to something (laughs) sorry uh, to something that could be wholesome about their relationship something that could like sort of repair some of his pain around it some couples think that the solution to a failing marriage is to have a kid because they think it'll bring them closer together and that's of course not the situation that they're in but maybe he was attaching a lot of meaning to it because this little baby's innocent of what happened to him it's not his the baby's fault so I just I think it is interesting that he does feel such a deep attachment and maybe it's because he's having a hard time attaching to anyone I think it's a lot of things. I think you're right. I think also, though, he's feeling guilty that he can't reciprocate to Laurel because Voke could. And he remembers, I I think he even says, like, their love could live through a thousand flames or I I don't know. He There's some Klingon metaphor, like, or maybe it was as powerful as Kalis's and Kalis's wife. I forgot her name. <laughs> um, oh, awkward. Um, um, it's... <laughs> 
it's like it's fine but anyway ash remembers that Voke deeply deeply loved laurel and so i think he's just feeling guilty that he can't reciprocate and that he doesn't want to reciprocate and so i think when he sees a baby he jumps at the chance to say i'm worthy of being your partner in this because i will take care of your son when you can't because you're you're the chancellor you can't have a child especially <laughs> ash slash vokes child no way jose i mean yeah, she so says this baby is a vulnerability yeah then it is so freaking cool that we get to meet the baby Tanuvik, he's really old because he's like a monk with the time crystals. And so it affects all the Klingons who live there in really weird ways. Tanuvik understands that time is fluid. He's clearly like an evolved being when Pike meets him. I think it's really cool that after Pike is leaving the monastery with the crystal, Tanuvik clearly respects Pike because no one has left with a crystal in hundreds of years. Everyone can't go through with seeing how they're going to die. So he gives him the symbol of the torchbearer that Ash gave to Nuvik. And he says that he doesn't need it anymore. But while he was growing up, he used it as a sign of strength because it reminded him of his parents. And so the fact that he's evolved and he's a god now, a time god, and he says, my dad needs this more than I do, I think is a really sweet move because he didn't have to do that he seems very detached from the outside world and so i think it makes him really special and unique that he has this star he was always looking up to and thinking about while he was aging really quickly in two months yeah that is a cool move i agree like he's just a cool dude i really like how he doesn't seem bitter or mad about his parents uh sending him to the monastery some culturally context thing real quick there's an episode of mash which is like a very old show about the korean war that talks about there was a child born korean half korean half american and the mother left the korean baby with the mash unit and they're like what do we do with this baby and father mulcahy says that if this child is raised on korea like they will probably be killed because during the war, having a child that's half American is like a death sentence, essentially. And so they also bring the child to a monastery and have the child just like live their life with the monks in Korea. And so I found this to be a really interesting parallel because Klingons are also going through a time of massive upheaval, especially with humans. And they have this armistice, but it's very shaky. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's they had just gotten out of this massive war with the federation and so to have a baby that is connected to a human i mean he's not half klingon because technically it's volk's dna but it's also ash tyler's dna and also an albino klingon so a lot of strikes against this baby first of all it will completely demolish Laurel's position on the council. High council does find out about the baby, but she has this whole elaborate scheme to pretend that she murdered Ash and the child in order to show her strength for the high council. I think that it is a very, very brave choice of her because that is horrible to have to leave behind your child at a monastery because you know that they will literally be killed or all of you would be killed if this baby was allowed to live on Kronos. And she also says to Tyler, I will bear a child but once. And so she knows she's never gonna have another baby. And so it's heartbreaking for her. I do feel for her, but I am really glad that they got this closure, that they got the torchbearer's symbol back to them and got that moment to understand that their child was okay and he 
did make a life and it was sort of his purpose to go there. Like he was saying how deeply he connected with the monastery and the time crystals and everything. So I think it was the perfect place for him to be. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely meant to be there. And I think it's interesting that could not have happened in any other timeline. <laughs> I don't get the sense that Klingon culture at this point drinks their respect women juice. I don't think that women are elevated in the same way that the Dura sisters are. You know, the Dura sisters are allowed to be the heads of their family once their brother passes away. Well, but they struggle against- Barely. Oh. They have to get a nephew. Yeah. Yeah, like, they do have to get a, a fake nephew in order to. Yeah, I don't understand how Laurel got anyone on the council because she's female. But anyway, I mean, this is kind of my point is that she's not allowed to be a female while she's chancellor, and so that's exactly why they approve of her killing her son because she's not allowed to have a feminine side because that's weak. Mm-hmm. And I think it's awesome that Giorgio is in this episode too when they found out about, about the baby because. If you had any doubt that females were weak and then Giorgio like kills all these Klingons, you know, clearly. I think that Laurel knows exactly what kind of culture she's leading and this is what she's out to change. And I respect her for making a really tough choice by leaving her child in the monastery. I think we should talk about another lover now. (laughs) We went from Ash. Let's talk about Book. Woo! Uh, I think way better than Ash. (laughs) I'm sorry, Ash Tyler, not a big fan. (laughs) Will not subscribe. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably what Amanda would think too. She'd be like, honey, Ash was nice, but I really think you should marry Book. (laughs) I like this new boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Wow, Book is a great, great character. An amazing addition to this series. And just overall, really rapidly growing in the place in my heart where I hold all of my love for fictional characters, which is probably half of my heart (laughs) at this point. I think, you know, most humans are 70% water. I think Rihanna is 70% Star Trek love. (laughs) (laughs) So... I want to call him Shepherd Book because I'm thinking of Firefly. <laughs> I know. I was going to make a Firefly joke earlier too. <laughs> but we first find out in the episode Sanctuary, Book is not his original last name. His original last name is Terex. And he abandoned that name when he left his family. He says, Terex was my old family name and I stopped once my father and grandfather began working for the chain. Something like that. I, that wasn't a direct quote he was leaving behind a lot of who he was. And I think that there is a difference between someone like Saru who left his family in order to pursue a dream of his and to get out of an oppressive culture. Book left his family because he was, I think, ashamed of what they had become, concerned about his creatures that were being Mm -hmm. murdered. I think Saru has his whole quarters tied up with his Kelpian heritage and book literally changes his name. And so I think that's a huge difference because if you're abandoning your family name, then that's a whole nother level of separation that he's trying to enact in this situation. I totally agree. And I thought it was a little sad when he was showing Michael his planet and he says, it used to be so beautiful here before 
they destroyed it. And I don't know, I just related to that because whenever I go home, there's always a lot of construction and things are changing and I'll go over a place where there used to be a railroad track and the railroad track is gone now and it's just like smooth pavement. And I'm like, wow, like things are really changing around here. Ashlyn and I do a lot of hiking in the summer in Colorado and we'll go to places that we visited before and we'll see that it's been like ravaged by a fire or that they deforested a whole area to make a town, you know? And I think it's similar sort of like the pain of progress on a home is painful for people who grew up with it being a different way. Yeah, and change is hard. And especially when it's something that takes away the beauty of your home planet is even harder. And especially when you disagree with everything going on on the planet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this situation a bit. Osira is holding Quajon hostage, essentially, because she... She's the worst. (laughs) Literally the worst. And essentially, she sent these locusts further inland. And so they destroyed all the crops. And so that they had to rely on the chain so they could provide pesticides. Yeah, I just find this to be horrible because also Osira is using... Kaim's family against him as well. I mean, at one point she's like, you have a son, don't you? Have you ever seen a child starve? And it's horrible, like the way that she is able to just manipulate him. And he really considers turning Book in, turning his brother in. Yeah, there's a big rift between these brothers. It's mentioned that it's been 15 years since they've talked. I mean, we really should have a bingo card of how many characters have not talked to their family in 18 years, 15 years, 9 years, 13 years. I'm thinking about Riker, Quark, Spock. Just, <laughs> like, anyway, both of them are angry at each other. I think especially his brother is mad. I think Kaim is especially angry because Book is not prioritizing family. And so he's had to step up in the role and hold everything together while the world is crumbling around him and he's losing more and more control over the situation. I mean, he he didn't even tell Book that he had a son. And this son is super cute, by the way. I think he's probably like, what, eight, six? He's young. Seven? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's young. And so this is a long time for his brother not to have told Book about this, you know? And so I'm glad that they have this opportunity to reconnect. And the fact that it's such a high stress situation, I think, makes it even more important because that's really where bonds are formed for life is forged in the fire like that. And sometimes you can't see someone's true colors because they're not able to discuss them in a normal setting. But when it's high stakes situation and it seems like you're going to lose everything, you have to be honest and you have to make amends because that's what matters when it comes down to it. So I think even though it's sad that they have to go through such a traumatic event to reconnect, I think it's great. And I hope that we do get to see more of his family in the future, especially the little nephew, because especially Michael at the end, like hanging out with him, I was like, "Mm, is this some mother vibes? Are we about to see a mother captain? Like, I'm saying... Oh I'm my saying god. It. We might have to uh, revamp our family series if that happens just for discovery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ashlyn, I completely agree. Book was talking about his father and grandfather and Kaheem responds and they both ask for you on their deathbeds, which is a horrible thing to say, but also something that Kaheem thinks will get to him. He knows the best buttons to push because he's his brother and he knows exactly where it will hurt the most to say, you know, you missed coming back to see them before they died. 
when Book and Kaim are having this confrontation, Kaim says, we are your family. And Book says, act like it. And so I think Book can also dish it out as much as uh, Kaim can. And that's what makes it so difficult for them to get along is because they're both so stubborn. And I think Book is also acknowledging that these are the places where you failed me. And Kaim is like, these are the places where you failed me. How are we going to reconcile this? And of course, it's Michael who brings them together and who takes the two things in them that are deepest and most important and so similar. It brings it to the forefront saying, the two of you with our science and our amplified signal of their empathy so that they can push the locusts back out to sea and essentially rid their world of tyranny. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's amazing techno babble. It's really exquisite. So good. But essentially she takes the empathy part in them. And I love that it's empathy for them is sort of a physical manifestation because I do know people who are so empathetic that like they do physically manifest their emotions with people and it's beautiful to see because like I think book sort of emanates that and you can even tell even when Kaim is fighting with him they're both really unwilling to throw the punches that really hurt he actually decides not to turn in book so I mean he does make that decision yeah I'm just nodding in agreement <laughs> yeah I don't have much to say honestly <laughs> so Ashlyn and I spent probably 20 minutes before recording this podcast talking about how much we love Empress Giorgio and her character development throughout the series. And she's an amazing character and her family dynamics are wild. I mean, she's a Terran, so <laughs> everything is going to be wild. She's introduced at the end of season one when we find out that she is the Empress of the Terran universe. Michael and Giorgio have a special bond in every universe, it seems, because in the Mirror universe, and we learn a lot more about the relationship in Terra Firma Part 1 and 2 in the third season of Discovery, Giorgio raised Michael. She pulled her from like a trash heap, basically. <laughs> so we know nothing about Mirror Universe Michael and what happens to her parents. Like, where's Gabrielle Burnham in this one? Were they also killed by the Klingons? Except there's no time suit? Maybe? I don't know. We have no idea. But basically, Michael is parentless, orphaned, and alone. And Giorgio picked her up and started to raise her. We don't get to see exactly how the childhood was or anything because in Terra Firma, when Giorgio goes into the Guardian of Forever, it's a different version of events that happened than our season one understanding, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's a very chaotic situation. So this is Giorgio's chance to make things right with Mirror Universe Michael because she's just spent basically two full seasons getting to know Prime Universe Michael and she would die for her, would kill for her. She loves Michael so much and views her as her daughter despite her really thorny exterior, extremely murderous exterior. <laughs> she loves Michael. And so when the Guardian gives her a chance to redeem herself and to not kill Michael this time around because that's what she did the first time. She has some really questionable methods to get Mirror Universe Michael on her side because Taryn Michael is in love with Lorca, wants to overthrow her mom, just wants power. And Giorgio's solution to that is to torture her for months and to break her and to basically torture her into being nice. And it's hard to watch, but it's also kind of makes sense because the Terran universe is so crazy, but it's also awful. 
I don't know. How do you deal with all of this going on, Rihanna? Well, as George O says in that episode, I've seen this episode like five times. It's so good. She says in Terra Firma Part 2, terror is love. She says there are no other ways to reach you. And this is the kind of relationship that a lot of Terrans, I think, have with just each other because there's actually some really interesting points in season two where Giorgio is talking about her past and she like insinuates that she killed her mother and so that in and of itself is terrifying and we don't know the circumstances as to why my guess is that it was to overthrow her and take power just like Michael did but that would be so interesting if that were the case because then it would mean it's this cyclical accumulation of events. I mean, we see this a lot in Klingon culture. Like it's not as violent or as mirror universe-y, but it's still like you have to kill to overthrow and take your place on the throne. (laughs) Anyway, I think that those parallels would be really interesting if we knew more information about how she killed her mother or if she did. (laughs) I wish we knew that too. I never got an answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for real. And she also says a little quote, which I like in season two. She says, children are parasites. I had to find someone else to feed mine or I wouldn't have gotten anything done. <laughs> which is just like the most Giorgio line, you know? Which is so funny that then she chooses to adopt Michael or to take her from the trash heap. I think that maybe a lot of Terrans view children as just a way to gain more followers, first of all, and to heighten their potential for power so that they can succeed you. In the Marvel movie Infinity Wars, the main villain, Thanos, the super mega evil villain, and he goes to a planet and he's just murdering half the population because that's his solution to like climate change and overpopulation he just kills half of it um but he sees this cute little girl gamora and he decides to save her and spare her from the killing and so i kind of wonder if it was a similar situation with george she's just out ravaging planets murdering everyone taking control for her empire and she sees a cute little baby and she's like oh all right, I have like the resources to take care of a child, might as well. And then I can raise a follower. I can raise someone who will be my predecessor, possibly. So I see a lot of similarities between Giorgio and Thanos, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. (laughs) I never thought I would hear it, but I've never agreed with anything more. That is such a good comparison. I mean, there's also time crystals in season two, I'm just saying. Yeah, I know, I was thinking about the time stone, but... This is just a Marvel rant real quick. (laughs) Back Back to our original scheduled programming. I completely agree. I think that Giorgio may have killed Michael's parents, you know, if that's the case. Oh, God. Oh, God. You're right. Oh, Jesus. So I don't know. I mean, listeners out there, this is the first kind of glimpses we get of Giorgio and her family. I mean, this is, of course, stuff we learn in Terra Firma from her past. I wanted to talk about Mirror Universe Michael and Giorgio first yeah. because then it's easier to compare Prime and Taryn yeah. Giorgio. We can also talk about Prime Giorgio and how it mirrors the relationship. I love that Mirror can be a pun in this way. Yeah. <laughs> a pun and a reference? Like, that's a great combo. <laughs> wow. 
Let's jump complete opposite direction. Let's talk about Prime Giorgio and Prime Michael. We get, I think, the best sense of their closeness in the pilot episode of Discovery, which we, of course, talked about. It's our New Trek era episode. That one and the, the following one, the Battle of the Binary Stars, you really get a sense of how close they are. But clearly, Giorgio is her foster mother, but in a different way. After Michael's parents are murdered and she is adopted by Amanda, then she's kind of adopted by Giorgio when she joins Starfleet and the Shinzo. Michael is someone who is blessed to have three incredible mothers. When she betrays her prime Giorgio and Vulcan grips her is such a heartbreaking moment because Michael's just doing it for the good of Starfleet. Yikes. I mean, we've talked about this, but they are as close as you can get, I think. Giorgio knows her really well. She's been her first officer for like seven years or something on the ship, a really long time. They really have a good thing going together. So that first initial betrayal that starts out the whole show is shocking on purpose because it's a big statement. I do love seeing this relationship. We talked about it a bit in our episode, you're right. But just to see the two of them interact as first officer and captain and to see how comfortable Michael is with her is so cool because I think I do see that comfortability in the mirror Giorgio and mirror Michael moments, you know, I mean, at the beginning before the betrayal and the murder. This is also a Shakespeare podcast. (laughs) Um, I've been feeling like this is the end of Hamlet. Hamlet. Hell yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. A contributing factor why Michael connected so much with Giorgio was she was coming from a Vulcan family with Amanda and Sarek. It was just a very complicated situation. Then to have a captain who is like a mother to you who accepts you and listens to you and knows you is just great. You know, I mean, it's great to find someone who can act as a sister and a mother type of relationship. This is what Michael says at Giorgio's service, even though she's not dead, but she's been sent back, mm-hmm. is that she was like, she was a mother to me. She was a sister to me and I'll always value her. Yeah, that's so true. We have to be clear. There are two services of Giorgio's. There's one oh, in season one. That Michael can't attend because Prime Giorgio is dead. And now there's another service in season three that has Mirror Giorgio going into the Guardian of Forever. Thank you, Rihanna. It's wild that there are two services. See, if you guys think that this podcast is too long, it's because of crazy details like this, you know? (laughs) Like, we are really wild in out here. (laughs) Yeah, because there's so much and it's so in-depth. For Empress Giorgio, for Tara Giorgio, she has a lot of adjusting to do once she is ripped into the Prime Universe and essentially like taken in, quote unquote, by Michael, which is kind of a role reversal for them. The daughter teaching the mother now. (laughs) They parallel each other in that. I think we really do get to see her growth because I think that she turns her terror instead of onto Michael. She turns it onto Michael's enemies because she is protecting Michael at all costs. And I think a part of that comes from love, which she doesn't ever want to admit because it probably would make her seem weak or like less of a strong empress. But I think that through this Discovery crew, they begin to teach her that like, it's okay to show love and it's okay to emote other things that aren't anger. In that way, I think it's so special that she was taken back to learn a different way of caring for one another. It doesn't have to be through blood and sweat 
Yeah, especially when in season three, when Giorgio's starting to feel the effects of being away from the Terran universe, she is having a really hard time with simple tasks. Like her hand keeps phasing out and she can't even pick up her coffee. And the crew notices and they notice that she's having trouble and they're telling her over and over, it's okay to struggle and it's okay to ask for help. And it doesn't make you weak. You have to accept your situation and accept help. And so this is a really hard thing for Giorgio. Yeah, I just love seeing how much the crew cares about her, even though she is this wild really, <laughs> yeah, the biggest wild card in the franchise, mm -hmm. perhaps rivaled with Q. Yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I also think that one of the most revealing moments with Giorgio and Michael's relationship is at the middle end of season two when the crew decides to capture the Red Angel and Michael uses herself as bait, basically. So she has to go out on this chair and they take off the roof of the facility they're in and then Michael begins to suffocate. And Giorgio is losing her mind because Spock is threatening, you know, Giorgio wants to end the experiment right away. Like when she only has 40% oxygen, Giorgio is like, end it, get her out of there. Like she's really seriously upset. This is not a mild reaction or a removed reaction at all. This is Giorgio ready to kill Spock <laughs> if he does not let her run out to save Michael. And I was really moved in that scene because you really see through the cracks of Giorgio and you see, oh, she really cares about Michael. She really sees her as her daughter. Yes, absolutely. And I think partially that reason is because Michael knows how to meet her where she is. She knows about the Terran universe. And I think she knows sort of how her reactions translate. She's really good at reading Giorgio because she got so good at reading Giorgio Prime. I think that there's still similarities because it's a mirror, you know, it's just like reflected in a different way. And she shows her love in a different way. And Michael knows that and she'll go up and just like be aggressive with her and be like, seriously, we are not playing this game. I think that they both show their love in beautiful ways and it makes it so evident when Giorgio goes back through the guardian of forever to that mirror universe because she really has changed and all of the Terran members of the crew can see that they see that she's changed and especially Michael sees it and ends up betraying her again but still Giorgio has a different mindset around it one of my very favorite scenes which is also so horrible is when Giorgio talks to Michael while she's like asleep after being tortured which Ashlyn talked about and she brings her this jar of fireflies and says this whole story about how Michael used to have night terrors and so she would sleepwalk to this field of fireflies and rest of the time that Michael had night terrors, Giorgio would sit out there with her and just like be with her. And so that is definitely like the ways in which no one can tell that she shows love for Michael. She brought fireflies to her and says, I will bring all the fireflies to you. What a beautiful scene in the middle of this grotesque torture that's happening. I know. And just what whiplash to see Michael tortured and then see Giorgio being so loving and kind to her. But the wounds she has are from Giorgio. It's really rough. Mm -hmm. It's wild. And oh, yeah. This time around, when Giorgio's in the Terran universe, she understands the value of connecting with people because it can still further her advancement and she can still conquer worlds. 
without blood. So this is something that she learned on Discovery is with some negotiation or even just quick talking, you can come to an agreement <laughs> with someone and just be their emperor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good old Giorgio. She's <laughs> amazing. Um, but everyone else in the universe views it as weak because she's not murdering everyone. But Giorgio knows that the future is a stake because this is why the Terran universe fell apart and the propaganda machine did not last very long. I think we learned that the Terran Empire doesn't even last half as long as Starfleet. It fizzles out after a couple hundred years. Giorgio knows that this is not a stable thing that they're doing. And if she doesn't make some changes, their way of life will vanish forever. So she has their best interests at heart still. It's her universe and she's still fighting for it, but just in a different way, in a softer way that she learned from the Discovery crew and from Michael. And it, I think it's really nice. And I hope when we see whatever spinoff she ran off to in The Guardian of Forever, that we get to see more of this same kinds of changes that she's making. All right, the grand finale, what we've been waiting for for years. Michael, wow, here we go. Rihanna, in our very first episode of the family series, which we titled where my son is concerned after the great quote from Sarek. You asked me a question. When we were talking about Journey to Babel, Kirk literally introduces Spock's parents to himself. <laughs> and you asked me, why didn't Spock tell Jim about his parents? I said something like, if we were talking about Discovery, I'd have a different answer for you. Yeah. And then I gave my TOS explanation. So Rihanna, now I'm turning those tables on you and asking you, now that we're talking about Discovery, why didn't Spock tell Kirk about his parents? I think because it would bring up too much of Michael. I mean, Spock still kept his distance after these events. We know that having a TOS and Discovery perspective after he got control of his life again after the Red Angel, but was dealing with the grief of losing Michael, he had to separate himself again from his parents. And he didn't talk to them, and especially his father for ages. And I think that it would have brought up so much already of their conflict and his pain, along with chosen silence about Michael, you know, that I mean, yes, they probably talk about her. In season two, the finale, Spock says, we only mention your name amongst each other. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the main reason. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, first of all, Michael's disappearance from the history books is purposeful because they're trying to stop control. I also think that there's just such a complicated history between the family that to even explain why he's not talking to Sarek is problematic and would give too much away about Michael. And so I'm just thinking all of Spock that we know in TOS, and I'm just assuming, I know, obviously, Gene Ronberry had no idea about Michael or anything. Yeah. And the writers back then had no idea. Mm -hmm. Part of why I love doing this podcast is we can combine the canon yes. and think about things from a TOS perspective, knowing the facts that Discovery gives us. So anyway, Absolutely. if you're mad about that, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fine. So we know that TOS Spock is carrying Michael with him everywhere he goes. And in Unification Part 3, which is a just fantastic, I think my favorite episode of the season, mm -hmm. which is saying a lot. Navarre is new Vulcan. It's uh, the Romulans have moved on to Vulcan and they are coexisting. The unification went well. The species are together again. There's political trouble in this 
current future timeline that we're in, which is a bummer. Um, but <laughs> anyway, the current president, I believe, or representative that this government is dealing with, this Vulcan woman, she says to Michael, after hearing Michael's convincing speech that they would like to share the date about the burn and it's all this whole plot thing. <laughs> she says to Michael, I wonder how much of the man Spock became was because of who his sister was. And I love that quote for a couple of reasons. First of all, because that's amazing. <laughs> um, and what a like fantastic thing to say because Spock is like the best person in the universe. But it also makes me think about the women who are left out of history I'm reading a book by Jane Glover called Mozart's Women, and it's about the women in Mozart's life that almost no one knows about. For example, his sister was almost as much of a prodigy as he was, and yet no one even knows that she existed unless you're like me <laughs> and you are kind of a scholar about music history. His mother was also a musician. His whole family was full of female musicians, and none of them are mentioned at all. And this is not just the case for Mozart. I mean, there are so many women who are silenced in history. I mean, who were the founding mothers. Anyway, yeah. And so I think that quote is also applicable because Michael was literally shut out of the history books, obviously, as we mentioned, for a control reason. But I think it's just an important thing to bring up. Also in Unification Part 3, Michael gets a chance to look into Spock's amazing speech, which of course is in The Next Generation, Unification Part 1 and 2. That episode ends with Spock giving a speech about unification between the Romulans and the Vulcans, and it might not be a century till it happens. It might not be several centuries until it happens. You know, very prophetic words like Spock always dishes out. And Michael says, I never took a chance to look back at the man who he became. Oh man, doesn't that just hit you? And then Book's immediate response is, you guys are chronic overachievers. <laughs> <laughs> What a great so point. Good. Yeah. And so I want to dive in a little bit to Sarah and Amanda now because both of their children don't talk about Cyborg. Um, yeah. <laughs> both of their children become exceedingly extraordinary people, but had exceedingly terrible childhoods. <laughs> and exceedingly terrible circumstances. Oh, God. Yeah, seriously. Like, that's so true. There is so much baggage that comes along with being... A child of Sarek. Because of this, Michael's telling Tilly about Sarek a bit. And she said, he believed I could serve as humanity's potential. And Tilly says that's a lot of pressure to put on a child. And I really like that Tilly calls that out and says, you don't have to be humanity's potential. You can just be a part of humanity and you don't have to take this burden on your shoulders. And it's something that Michael is getting called out for time and time again, mostly by Spock and Amanda and Tilly. And I think it's good because she needs to learn that, but she wasn't taught that by Sarek. Sarek instilled this, you must be great all the time at everything. And he did it to Spock too. And to see the both of them have to struggle through that in different ways is hard because they both handle it differently. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Michael, I think is a little more willing to follow what Sarek says and doesn't rebel against him as much because first of all, she's older. And so she joins this family unit when it's already formed. And so she hasn't grown up with the baggage that Spock already has. Also, she is just so grateful to be taken in and to have people who are taking care of her, even if it's sometimes tricky to be around and it's hard to grow up on Vulcan with all the logic extremists. It's dangerous, you know. So I think she's more willing to listen to Sarek and become 
whoever he's molding her to be. And unfortunately, he molds a little too well because she applies to the Vulcan Science Academy. The Academy says, sure, we'll let her in. But once your son Spock joins the Academy, then there will be two basically freaks in the academy is kind of what they say like we'll have a half human and a human like that's too many and you need to choose and so first of all these racist vulcans need to get out they do not want change and they even though are in the federation are not committed to the ideals of the federation and i'm just like come on guys anyway so what a horrible choice for Sarek to make he even says you ask me to make an impossible choice <laughs> But Zarek chooses Spock to join the Academy, and Spock is much younger. I believe there's five or six years between Spock and Michael. She's 11 or 12 when her parents are murdered, and Spock is only like probably six. six? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Zarek is choosing to trust that Spock will follow Sarek's lead and will listen to him and will push him to join the Academy. And this is exactly what causes the rift between them is... Sarek has this huge pressure to have Spock join the Vulcan Science Academy because he said no to Michael, who was an excellent candidate. And it hurt Michael so much. She did not know about this choice. She just thought she was inadequate for her whole life. And that was another hurdle for her to overcome. Something that she's still dealing with in the second season. I do feel sympathy for Sarek. I don't know if he made the right choice. I can't answer that. I don't know if there was a right choice except that people shouldn't be racist. But this is also what causes the really fractured relationship between Spock and Sarek that they have for their whole lives because Spock said no and joined Starfleet. And that simple act was so weighted and Sarek felt it like a punishment to him that he could no longer have a normal relationship with Spock after that. Wow, that's so true. I think I'm now putting together the fact that this makes more like emotional chronological sense too for Spock, how he is in TOS, how he is at Journey to Babel, and when we first see that rift being very clear. And I think you're so right because it came with so many emotional implications. And the fact that I find really sad is that Michael is far easier to forgive Spock for that than Sarek ever is. And Michael was the one who truly lost out there. I mean, of course, it was a tough decision for Sarek, but Michael was the one who he didn't choose. It's just interesting to see how accepting she is of Spock because she understands his human side just like Amanda does. And Sarek just really can't even comprehend that side of him. I totally agree. I do want to talk about Amanda a little bit because... I love this actress who plays Amanda. Oh, yeah, she's great. Mia Kirshner. She is, I think, trying to channel notes of the same Amanda that we meet in Journey to Babel. They're both incredibly independent women who are incredibly independent and driven and dedicated to Sarek and to their marriage. Whenever Sarek will say like something dumb, Amanda's just like, try again, husband. <laughs> something that kind of bothers me about this characterization is that Amanda really blames herself for the problems that Spock is having. And I don't think she needs to be because she puts a lot of weight on herself. So as Spock is slowly like losing his mind because of the Red Angel stuff going on, she says to Michael, poor Spock was always in a situation where he was strongly discouraged from displaying his emotions by Sarek. And so to protect Spock and to not confuse him, Amanda began choosing also to suppress her emotions around Spock. 
And so she gave all her love to Michael. There's several scenes throughout that season where we see baby Spock sadly watching from the corner while Michael's being read to and being hugged on and cuddled. And it's so sad. Poor baby Spock. That's something. I think that's not an insignificant thing that happened. But I feel bad for Amanda. And she blamed yeah. himself for his dyslexia. Yeah. Yeah. So she can't control that, mm-hmm. that he has dyslexia yeah. and that he struggled because of it. I just feel like this Amanda is really hard on herself. She's not trying to hurt Spock. Like her curbing her emotions are for his own good. And a lot of the problem is because Spock has a limited understanding of how to handle his emotions because of this upbringing. And so every way that he views his parents is from a child's perspective because he could never deal with these emotions. And so everything he's going through with Michael is really revealing to him and I think really important because suddenly Spock went from being totally alone, having this very strange upbringing and then not talking to Michael or Sarek for years. As they get closer and closer, he realizes I had an ally all along. Michael understands what I went through and I'm not alone and I can get through it because she understands me too. Yes, absolutely. That was beautiful and sad. And I just feel so bad for the two of them because they're both trying to meet each other at different levels because of what their parents expect of them. And I think you're absolutely right. Amanda should not blame herself. I think she probably was also getting pressure from Sarek. They're raising a child who's supposed to be like humanity's best and brightest. Then Amanda probably got sucked into that too, you know? She does stand up for herself a lot, which is so great. And if memory serves, it's essentially... Michael acknowledging that she should have tried some other way to connect with Spock and to not push him away. And Spock says to her, your words showed me how damaging my humanity could be. And she says, no, your humanity was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think that is her trying to tell him that I'm sorry I disregarded your humanity. She called him a freak when she left. Like she was trying to distance herself so much from Spock as a child after this attack that happened from these Vulcan theologic extremists bombed the children's center that Michael was in. Horrible situation. But essentially this pushed Michael to think, I can't be close to Spock. It's going to put the family in danger. And in this flashback, she keeps saying your family and Spock keeps correcting her and saying our family. Like every time she says it, he's pushing back and saying, no, you're a part of this. And he's like, staying together will be stronger and all of that. And Michael just can't do it. She's so worried about getting the people around her hurt because I think she does blame herself for her parents' death, you know? And so it's hard for her to stand by while people could potentially be hurt when she thinks it's quote unquote because of her. They have a great conversation after Michael learns that Leland was the reason or one of the reasons that her parents were killed by the Klingons was because the Klingons were looking for the time crystal that Michael's mother had, that Leland had sent to her. And so she's angry and she's working out and beating up the dummy. (laughs) And Spock comes and they have this really nice conversation that I think is very healing for both of them. At one point, Michael says, I was guilty because I thought that I had killed my parents because Michael wanted to stay for a couple more days to see the star go Nova. And so she believed all her life that she was the reason her parents were killed when really it was Leland. So she says, I brought my guilt into your home. Mm. And Spock says, you were a child. You know, and I think that that's such a way of freeing her. Just say you were 12 when that happened after the learning center was bombed. She was like 13, just a year after she lost her parents. 
of course she's going to feel all of these crazy ways. And so for a grown Spock to realize, okay, I was processing these emotions just like a child. I have to accept Michael. And so it's just great that they're able to have these deep conversations. I think also spurred by Saru, because when he's dying, quote unquote dying, his last wish to Michael is that she reconnects with Spock because he really understands the power of a sibling relationship, which like same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah woo. And Michael's like, okay, you know, and so even though Saru lives, she still commits to that promise and it blooms into such a beautiful relationship. And it's so horrible that it's snatched away at the end of the season. So sad. You're breaking my heart as usual. No, but I truly am devastated by the ending of season two because Spock had fully intended on going with her. This is something I forgot on like the first two rewatches. I thought that Spock was just always planning on staying behind, but then my logic kicked in and I was like, he would never just stay behind. Like what would he, he has be leaving nothing behind? to stay for. Yeah. yeah. Everything he loves is in that time suit, you know, <laughs> like it's just Michael and he would follow her anywhere is the thing. And that's why she pushed him away. She called him her little shadow. And, yeah. and so anyway, I think this is true even now for the two of them, especially after they've repaired their relationship as much as they can right now. But of course, Spock being a needs of the many person knows that once his shuttle is damaged and he can't get back to the Discovery, he knows he has to stay behind because otherwise they'd have to get their shields down. He's like, that's too dangerous literally the whole way to the galaxy oh yes absolutely i also just want to talk about the scene where michael says goodbye to amanda and sarek mm. well she doesn't even tell them that she's going to the future sarek knows because his katra is yeah. in michael from the learning center he healed her and so the katra was transferred and so whenever one of them is in danger the other one knows which i think is super cool and so no matter how far away i i think sarek was just meditating on vulcan and he's like oh my god michael I have to go. And so without any question, him and Amanda just jump into a shuttle and they go and find Michael to say goodbye. And one of my favorite lines that Sarek says is, it is the duty of every parent to make rights of wrongs that we ourselves have made. He essentially says, and you have done that, you know, yeah. um, like raising you has been a privilege, even though I haven't always said it. Mm. And so I think it's a good closing moment for them. And what Michael says in return is, as much as I tried to push you away, you never let me go. And I love that too, because that's who Michael is. She's fighting to make her future happen, you know, but Sarah and Amanda are like, don't run away. Come on, <laughs> stay with me. It's going to be okay. So I, I think Michael's relationship with Sarah, especially and Amanda, is a lot healthier than Spock and Sarah. Because she was the older sibling and she's able to see things from a different perspective. But I'm just glad that they were able to part on good terms. But I also know that her absence was a heavy burden for all three of them who remained back in the past. Because how do you move forward when you've lost someone who's a core part of your family? It's very hard. You know, it reminds me of Trip losing his sister. It's so hard to have that forward motion. I just think that the bond that Sarah, Amanda, and Spock have with Michael is so special, especially 
in this second season. But I think there's one scene I want to talk about with Pike talking to Michael. And Mm. he brings up a little bit of his own family in just like this one quote, which I'm going to read. It's in the episode New Eden. He says, family dynamics can be complicated. My father was a science teacher. And when he wasn't doing that, he taught comparative religion. It was a confusing household and we didn't agree on a lot. And so Mm. this like, ironically sounds a lot like Spock's upbringing like they didn't agree on a lot it was confusing about how do you deal with the father who teaches comparative religion and science you know like that's a duality that's different of course than Spock's duality but they have similar upbringings but I think it also gives Michael the perspective that she needs because finally Pike tells Michael that Spock is actually at the psychiatric institute and he's not just taking leave and Michael doesn't know how to reach out to him or how to even begin to come back into Spock's life and I just love that then Pike is like let me share a story with you about my family he's a very good dad to all of them on the bridge crew like he even says when they're trying to get Spock back he says our boy's in trouble you know he's kind of like the father figure to Spock And to Michael, it's just lovely. Well, and he says that our boy's in trouble when Amanda is there as well, because Amanda has come to Discovery to talk to Michael about Spock. I think also, similarly to how Michael took George Owen as kind of a Starfleet mom, Spock absolutely takes Pike in as a Starfleet dad, because that's the first captain he serves under after he joins. He's very dedicated to Pike, even in the pilot of the original series. There's definitely a bond between them. And they have a very special relationship that I'm glad you brought that up. And I think it sounds like maybe that is one reason why they got along so well is similar upbringings. I love Pike so much. I'm so happy that he's in the show and Anson Mount is a treasure to us all. Truly. Oh, what a legend. I love that they bring him back and oh, just just you wait. We're going to keep talking about Pike in upcoming things. So it's time to turn to Michael's mom. Let's talk about Gabrielle. So she, like Michael, is an engineer. She's a genius. She built the time zoo herself. And Michael just thought she was dead this whole time. And so it's a shocking revelation and just a beautiful piece of acting when Michael finds out that her mom is alive. It's extremely realistic because she's just in total disbelief for like five minutes. Just amazing acting. And so once she actually meets her mom, her mom is trying to push her away and not get connected to her because it could seriously jeopardize the mission. And Michael doesn't understand that at this point. So she's, you know, hurt by it. I totally, totally understand her mom's perspective, especially after rewatching this season. So now this is my second or third rewatch of season two of Discovery. And I really understand her mom because all she's trying to do is save humanity. She is selflessly doing this. Obviously, she's doing it for Michael, but also because everything gets destroyed. How can you not want to change that if you have a time suit and you're all alone in the future? But it's at a high price. And that price is losing all connections to your former life and kind of becoming a soldier of time. She has a totally new perspective as a scientist from this. And I think she really changes, but it will never change that she loves Michael. And it turns out that she's been watching her her whole life. She's at her graduation where she's disappointed that she didn't get into the Vulcan Science Academy. She watches her Vulcan group Giorgio in the first episode. She's there for every moment and she knows Michael better than Michael knows herself. Definitely. Reminds me a lot of 
the visitor in Deep Space Nine, she is only getting glimpses into her child's upbringing and it's devastating to watch. And this is exactly what Cisco went through with Jake in Deep Space Nine. So I don't know. I just find those parallels really interesting. I was thinking that too. It's really interesting. And it's similar like rubber band, but instead of Cisco being rubber band to Jake, Gabrielle is rubber banded to the future. And so both of them are having to jump away from their children. It's hard being a space mom. Oh, it's really tough. Yeah, space parenting is really yeah, hard. Exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, Mars ain't the kind of place to oh, raise your kid, fact, you know. <laughs> okay, there's also another great, great scene because there's a million great scenes in these episodes where Dr. Burnham asked Giorgio to take care of Michael. And it's amazing because she has this mother to mother connection. She even says mother to mother. I love the mom connection because it does bind people in this way. I mean, even we talk about ancient societies, all of the moms would band together to take care of the children, you know, and I don't know, I just I love to see a good mom connection, especially how fiercely protective they both are of Michael. Females gotta support females every single day. And so now like, she technically has four moms because of Prime and Mirror Giorgio. Like she is just gaining moms every single day and it's amazing. Dr. Burnham is trusting Giorgio to take care of her. She's seen everything in time. So she knows, she knows that Giorgio cares. That's what I was gonna say is ultimately Gabrielle is the best judge of Giorgio because she knows everything that can or will happen to her. She knows all these people extremely well, even though they don't know her (laughs) at all. I think that makes her invaluable when we see her again in season three, again in Unification Part 3, because she has joined the basically most badass part of Romulus. What's the society? Can you remind me of what they're called? Romulus. Yeah, they devote their lives to absolute candor. So they're always like super honest, always have the tea for you, hot and ready to serve. (laughs) And they're extremely badass ninja assassins, basically. They're awesome. And so it totally makes sense that Gabrielle would join the Coat Malat. I'm so happy that she did. Well, because they also, the Coat Malat found her on Terra Elysium and took her in. And again, women supporting women. They're like, we're going to teach you in our ways because we know that you are worth it. And I just love that because she gets to gain a family again, even after the devastating loss of her husband and Michael. Over and over again, she had to lose them throughout time. Yeah, yeah. The other part of the Kuat Malat is that they bind themselves to lost causes. Just watch Picard and you'll totally understand if you haven't seen it. But I love that she makes this appearance during Colin Tet. So essentially, the Colin Tet, it's kind of like a Socratic seminar, actually, is what I thought of it as. But it's mostly a way to like a judge of character. It's also when there are findings of new scientific data and you want to present it to the academy, this is the traditional way, like the ancient way of doing it. And Michael says in the episode, this is how we started understanding our most basic truths is through these seminars. <laughs> Thanks, Rihanna. I'll just call it a seminar. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a way of people to hear you when no one else is listening, like in a legal way. Yeah. And this is all about Michael saying she's presenting new evidence about the burn and she wants to get the details from Navarre. Michael's going through such a hard time this season and she's drifting away from the Federation. She doesn't know if she belongs here or if she belongs out gallivanting with book 
She's really lost. And her mom right away calls her out and says, you look like you're between places. Michael wrongly assumes that her mom is going to help her and they're going to work together to get her through this. And her mom even warns her, you're going in this with a lot of blind spots. And so throughout the seminar, her mom, Gabrielle, just drops down hard truth after hard truth until Michael is really worn down. She's upset and she pushes her to the point where Michael's like, well, you know what? I'm at my most honest now and I will fight to prove myself because her mom, she knows exactly what to do to pull that out of Michael. But I think she's also fulfilling her duty. Like even though she knows Michael really well, she's also acting as a fair judge for the seminar. Yes, exactly. I love that she gets to be so candid with her because it's exactly what Michael needs, even if she doesn't think so. Like she just needs a little push. She'll spill and actually tell her truth. I love the end of this episode. It is so good because we see Michael in the same quarters all the time when she's looking at messages from her mom's log when she's practicing to be in the time suit and everything. And then we get to see her mom actually walk in, like in the flesh. And it's such a cool parallel. And to see like how far they've both come is amazing. And so in this last scene, they're parting ways again. But this time, Gabrielle says, you always know where to find me. And that is like something that is so natural for a mom to say. Like, I'm sure our mom has said that quite a lot. But to hear it from someone who you thought had died for so many years and then who was wrenched out of time, to hear it and to know that that it's real, that she's literally just like a palm link away. It's such a good closure for them and a, a way for them to develop in a relationship that feels more normalized. I actually was thinking about our own mom during the trial. (laughs) Sometimes you need someone in your life who's going to be bluntly honest with you and about yourself, but you trust them enough to know that it's coming from a loving place. They're not just trying to be mean. Yeah. Yeah. We all need someone in our lives who has our best interests at heart, but is not afraid to tell you some hard truths. It's so amazing that Michael has her mom back in her life. And I can't wait for season four when we see her mom do some amazing assassin stuff. Yeah. And I think the fact that she bound herself to Michael because she was a lost cause is weirdly comforting because you have someone who still believes in you, even if it is a lost cause. I think that's what really the Co-op Milot is about. It's not like we pity you. And so we're going to like help you out and make it not a lost cause. They're like, no, we're bound to you because we understand and we're still here. Yep, absolutely. I can't believe we talked for three hours straight about Star Trek when this is edited down. I guess it'll be like two and a half, two hours. But Rihanna and I just really talked about Star Trek for three hours as we do every week and as we love doing. And as we're also doing for Lower Decks on our Patreon, we are just always talking and thinking and living and breathing Star Trek. (laughs) Yes, we are so, so glad that you joined us for this Discovery podcast. And we look forward to our Picard episode coming up next week, where we're just gonna talk about characters who are coming back again that we knew from other series. So that's always a fun time. We also have a Dura Sisters podcast first coming up next week. We will have a special guest on the show. So 
just get excited. We will have a third perspective for you to listen to. I just want to end with a beautiful quote from Sarek. He says, there is no telling what any one of us may do where the heart is concerned. Rest in peace, Sarek. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week as Ashlyn and Rihanna discuss the familiar relationships in Star Trek Picard. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron, you can donate any amount per month to have access to our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and future reviews of the animated series. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worst Revenge, was written by Aurillo Voltaire. Why was Captain Picard so confused when the android disappeared? Because they lost their data!